Welcome to Therapist Uncensored, a podcast where therapists freely speak their minds about real life matters. Hey there, everybody. We are back, and thank you very much for joining us. This is the launch of season two of Therapist Uncensored. A year ago this month, we started this little project, and we ha- it has just, man, it has just been beyond our wildest dreams as far as how it's taken off. We so appreciate it. As a matter of fact, we just heard this month that uh, Therapist Uncensored is, was listed as the number three of top 50 podcasts for therapists. So we're thrilled about that. And thank you, and thank you for sharing, and please continue to do so. And uh, parentheses, this is not just for therapists. <laughs> so let's just be clear about that. Now, in season two, we've got some changes, but the most important one we'll announce today, which is uh, a change to our team. Our co-host, Patty Allwell, has decided that she is going to move on right now from Therapist Uncensored because she is going to be working on, she's got s- some very exciting new projects that she's been thinking about and wants to put some time in uh, these other things. So we're super sad to have her go, but we are excited for what's to come for her. And most importantly, we're just so, so grateful and appreciative. She has been integral to this show, and it wouldn't have happened without her. And so uh, we want to give her a big, big, big thank you and wish her the very best and can't wait to hear about the new projects. Now for season two, this is our launch. This is our first podcast, and it is super fun. It's a really lively guest. His name is Doug Braun Harvey. And well, I'm going to let him introduce himself right here in just one second. The big thing is he's a sexual health expert, which sounds like such a great job. And he's a psychotherapist in San Diego. And I'm going to let you hear from him directly right now. Hey, I'm Ann Kelly. And I'm Sue Marriott. And we could not be more excited to have a special guest on today. And Fasten your seatbelts because this will be a very sexy conversation. <laughs> Bring in your spouses. You know, what, should we pause for a minute so they can go get their spouses? Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Now they're just going to replay it for them later. Um, but welcome, Doug Braun Harvey. Thank you, Sue and Ann, for having me here, having me in Austin to be a guest on your show. Uh, we're going to talk about sexual health today and tell a little bit of myself in a minute. But I think the important thing is, is these are conversations that don't happen often enough. So I'm, I feel privileged and happy to be here. And we're going to have some really interesting conversation. Now, I'm a marriage and family therapist. So I, I do therapy in San Diego, California. I do individual and group therapy for men without a control sexual behavior. And by the end of the podcast, people know what that sentence means. And I also teach and train a lot of therapists on how to talk about sexual health. And I write books. That's right. And as a matter of fact, he got some very exciting news just recently, that his book Treating Out of Control Sexual Behavior, Rethinking Sex Addiction, has won a very cool award. My co-author and I, Michael Vigorito, and I wrote the book, and it was awarded by the Society for Sex Therapy and Research, which is a North American organization, as the uh, Health Book Award for 2018. That's so, awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. That yeah, we, uh, we, we yeah. were very excited. And, and I think particularly what heartens me is, you know, this is a very small niche area of human sexuality. When you think of all the things that we could be concerned about with health and sexuality, that an organization that looks at the broad picture of human health and sexuality thought that a a way in which we address this issue was useful enough that they wanted to recognize it. And boy, that that just that just really is very, very meaningful. So what is it that people are so excited about then? You know, you talk a lot about sexual health. And what do you think of with sexual health, Anne? I'm thinking of seventh grade health class, for one. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about all those pictures and embarrassingly seeing... Cucumbers and condoms? (laughs) (laughs) We didn't get cucumbers and condoms. That would have been advanced. Anne, I'm having a flashback. My eighth grade health class, if I can just say this on the podcast, they showed a slide of a male penis with a shanker on it for syphilis, right? (laughs) And all I'm thinking about is we're sitting in a classroom looking at a penis. And I was like stunned and shocked (laughs) because I'd never been in a public place in my entire life where a genital in a picture was watched together. And and, and, And a diseased one. But you know... That was such a side issue. But you know what? In our society, we're comfortable talking about sex when it hurts people. Mm -hmm. So they could show a male penis 
to eighth graders in a health class as long as it had a shanker on it. (laughs) (laughs) And as long as it scares you. And as long as it scares you. Yeah. But, you know, so I, I, I think that's something important for us to all think about, that how comfortable are we just even talking about sexuality when it's about when it hurts people. So we can talk about sexual abuse. We can talk about sexual violence. Sexual trauma. Sexual trauma. These are incredibly important things to be talking about. Sexual addiction. Sexual addiction. uh, You know, and we'll we'll talk about all these languages as we go through. But I think what I hope we talk about more is a more balanced conversation. That sexual health is about balancing pleasure and safety. That both the pleasure of sex has to be included in the conversation with the safety of sex. And when you overemphasize one or the other, it's difficult to have sexual health. So sexual health is about a balance. And in our country, we tend to be so comfortable talking about the dangers and risks and harms of sex. And we are incredibly uncomfortable talking about the pleasure of sex. I I just so couldn't agree with you more. It was just interesting. I was out with some friends the other day and they asked, you know, if our kids ever talked about masturbation. And I said, absolutely. He says, you've had a conversation about masturbation? I'm like, absolutely. And they could not believe it. And if you can't talk with your children about the positive nature, and the only way you come to them is the fear and the, you know, that's, that's really going to plug up a whole avenue of building health. Right. You know, one of the reasons I think masturbation is such a, a shocking conversation for many adults to think about having with adolescents is because masturbation is about pleasure. You're masturbating because it feels wonderful. You're learning how your body functions sexually. You're learning how things work. You're learning what you like and what you don't like. You're learning what fantasies turn you on and which they don't. You're learning about yourself in so many ways, but you're learning about your pleasure. In private and hidden. and Well, in private and with good boundaries. Yes. And so I think one of the big discomforts with talking about masturbation is because it's about pleasure. Mm -hmm. And we tend to live in a culture that believes if you focus on the pleasure of sex, it will become uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. That without fear, without danger, we wouldn't regulate our sexual lives. As if that's the only thing that allows us to regulate ourselves sexually is because sex is scary. Yes. Or selfish and pleasure. Right. The Puritan focus of, don't look at pleasure. Right, right. So pleasure sort of assumes a kind of self-absorption and lack of empathy and attunement with other people and caring and attachment. And all of that gets lost in this vacuous, you know, bubble of pleasure. Uh, there's, There's this sense that somehow when we really honor pleasure and sex, there's the risk of having no boundaries, no judgment, no ability to regulate oneself, no ability to be discerning and, you know, kind of say, no, 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 that's not for me. And so that is the world of pleasure. You can't have pleasure without boundaries. And so pleasure isn't a boundaryless place. Pleasure is a place where you know your boundaries and therefore you get to enjoy sex. That's a wonderful, wonderful way to look at it in that sense is that it's so underestimate humans and human nature to say that if we actually let ourselves really get in tune to our own pleasure and our own desires, that we have, we don't have our own internal capacity to be able to regulate and have other things bring boundaries, including the relationship that you're in, the caring of another person, the caring of oneself, that we have these naturally inherent capacity to contain and boundary ourselves. In fact, sex therapy is based on that very notion. Sex therapists are trained to help human beings discover those internal regulators so they can have their pleasure. Most people with their sexual disorders or sexual dysfunctions is because they're not listening to the internal part of them that says that's enough. Well, and that's really supported culturally when I think about burqas and the whole notion of women needing to cover themselves in order to not arouse the male who will then lose his mind. And it's then her fault because her ankle showed or what have you. Right, right. It is true that like when I think about it, as you're saying, part of sexual health and the treatment is to get in touch, not just with what the erotic is, what your erotic desires are, but your naturally occurring and naturally emerging boundaries are. Yes, Uh, that's right. And everybody has them. Yep. 
there's a few f- far end of the bell curve that don't. But, you know, really, that, we're not going to focus on that. Let's focus on the 99 or, you know, what large percentage of the people. So sexual health, as I said, is really this is balance between pleasure and safety. And sexual health is actually a term that's relatively new on the planet. So some people might be listening to this going, sexual health, you know, how did I not hear about this? Um, or what and, is it? And what is it, right? I would think about warn me so that I don't get an STD. That's what sexual health is. Right, right. And actually, prior to the mid-1970s, that's pretty much what sexual health was. Sexual health meant two things. It meant you did not have an unplanned or unwanted pregnancy, and it meant you did not get a sexually transmitted infection. That was it, really. And so we're only talking, what, less than 50 years ago, right? So this is a relatively new idea for the planet to think of sexual health as something more than just don't get knocked up and don't get the clap. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, it's got to be more than that. So, so the World Health Organization was actually the first place in the, on the planet that said sexual health has got to be more than just avoiding a negative outcome. You know, that's not health. Health is not the avoidance of a negative outcome. Health is a destination. Health is a vision. Health is a place you go, not something you have because you're not sick. So the World Health Organization updated their definition in 2006. So this is their more current working definition of sexual health. Sexual health is a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relationship to sexuality. It is not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmity. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships, as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences, free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. For sexual health to be attained and maintained, the sexual rights of all persons must be respected, protected, and fulfilled. That's the definition. So if if we just sort of take a moment to think about what did we just hear, I think we heard a couple of things that that kind of need to be just sort of seen as the bedrock of the definition. One is every definition of sexual health on the planet still has to start out with saying, guess what, folks? It's more than just not having a disease. If you notice, that was the first, the preamble, right? It's more than just the absence of disease because that's still what everybody thinks sexual health is. When I go around the country and I say I'm going to talk about sexual health, people think I'm going to be talking about gonorrhea. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I you know, <laughs> he's the I mean, guy. right, right, right. He's the, you know, you know, or, you know, they don't think because I'm a man, they don't think I'm going to talk about unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's if I was a woman in sexual health, she'd be talking about that. Guys in sexual health, they talk about STIs. You know, these are just impressions. So I really try to get like we're doing here. Let's get this out in the open. Let's expand people's mind when we say that word that it's so much more. And that actually sexual health is really basically about this tension as we were talking about between parameters of sex that involve safety and respect of another person and basic human conduct. And then because sex in and of itself is pleasurable. We have to sort of figure out how do we have the pleasure while also being safe. That's really what sexual health is. Now, the, the last part of uh, the definition, this is why it's a new definition for, in 2006, is they added on the idea of sexual rights. Sexual rights is an even much newer idea on the planet. If you're interested in sexual rights, Google World Association of Sexual Health, Sexual Rights, and you'll see there are 16 sexual rights on the planet. So what I did is in the 1990s, I was asked to do a project on addressing sexual health and drug and alcohol treatment. There might be listeners out there who have gone through drug and alcohol treatment or have loved ones that are uh, addicted to drugs and alcohol or have been through many treatment programs or recovering themselves. So I came up with six principles of sexual health that sort of created as a a user-friendly way to talk about these definitions I just read about sexual health. And the six principles are consent non-exploitation, protected from STIs, HIV, and unwanted and unplanned pregnancy, being honest or honesty, uh, shared values, and pleasure. So think of these, these six principles I just described as aspirations of human behavior. They're not rules. They're not laws. They're not thresholds that if you do it, you're good, and if you don't, you're bad. Their aspirations, their visions of how to be as a person rather than a destination that makes you a good person. 
sounds fantastic. And that is a lot there. Can, well, maybe we can break those down a little bit so that we can get into the detail mm-hmm. because yes. it's a list that sounds good, right? But like, let's dig our teeth in it. Um, it's sort of like you read we, something on a menu. That sounds delicious, but what's in it? What's in it? Yeah. yeah what's yeah, in it? Yeah. yeah. It sounds aspirational. Right, 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 right. right. But as we've been talking and getting to know you, the, the depth of which each one of those actually comes out in any kind of sexual interaction for oneself or between two people is actually these have very rich underpinnings to so, them and how that they manifest. So for example, like if we just start with the first one, consent. I'm going to just right before we pop into consent, I was thinking when we laughed at the beginning and we said, you might want to go get your partner, right? You might want to go, go run and get them. And I said, because we're going to talk about sexual health. I can feel the conflict like, oh, let me go. We're going to talk about sexual health. Like, right, 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 right. <laughs> Never mind. Exactly. Like, I wait. liked it up until the health part. Yeah, I was like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> That's right. Right. But what we're saying is we're really talking about, even as we talk about these six principles, we're talking about it with the richness of pleasure integrated. The richness of how to grow vivaciousness or how to keep it and allow that to be a very big part. So that's why you want to go get your partner. We're not just about to talk about STDs and how to be scared. We're talking about how to have sexual identity and relationships in a way that feels really robust. And so that's what you mean by health. Yeah. You know, and if, if the listeners could see you, I, I wish, I wish this was a video because there's no way you can say what Ann just said without her body moving <laughs> in a really lovely <laughs> way. It's like I'm and talking your, about and it. Your listeners should have seen the smile on Ann's face, you know, and so her hands, you know, and her hands were moving. Her. You could just see like when we, when we like welcome the pleasure in mm-hmm. our body just loves it. If we, if we can do it in a way that we know it's going to be respected and safe. Mm-hmm. It, our body just knows this. Right. Pleasure, respected, and safe. Yes. Being able to put all those together in a robust way that feels nice, you know, that's it feels good. That's mm-hmm. sexy. That's sexy. I I'm think that's sexy. With that's you. incredibly yeah. sexy. Yeah. So let's talk yeah. about sexual health and consent yes. in this yes. way. Well, <laughs> you know, the, the, re, the thing about consent that's so important is that in order to have sex, the bodily integrity of one person has to be violated by another person. In other words, we have to do things. We have to ask somebody to do something to our body or you know, we're going to do somebody else's body that in any other context would be seen as a violation. But instead, we're letting them do it because it feels like really good. <laughs> so consent is about if we're going to do this, I'm going to give you permission. I'm going to say, I want this. I'm going to say yes to this. And you're going to see me say yes. And because I said yes, I'm going to enjoy this experience with you that brings you pleasure or brings me pleasure. And so consent is actually absolutely the bedrock of all the sexual health principles. Without consent, everything else we're going to talk about here today doesn't matter. Seriously. It, 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 is, it is everything. And in fact, you go anywhere in the planet and every country in the world has some definition of what sexual consent is. So can we weave in intoxication and age? Okay, good. Right. So the most, one of the most common ways consent is defined is age of consent, right? So there's, there's like, you know, when are you old enough to have all responsibility to decide what you do with your body and who does it with you? And when do you have the right to make those choices? And it varies around the world. The youngest age of consent of any country in the world is 12. So in some countries, a 12-year-old has complete authority to decide whatever they want to do with their body. With anyone of any age. With anyone, well, well, except if they're under 12. Uh, Right, right, right. So So 30-year-old and 12-year-old, good. A 30-year-old and 12-year-old, that's consensual by law. Right. I mean, there's all sorts of other aspects here, but by at least legally, it's consensual. Think of it as a bell curve. Most of the planet is somewhere between 16 and 18 with age of consent. And then the far end of the bell curve on the other end is in some countries of the world, you can only have consensual sex if you're in a heterosexual marriage. So only a by heterosexual marriage, by law, the only absolutely consensual sex is a heterosexual couple who is legally married. Any other sexual activity, including solo sex, masturbation, is illegal, non-consensual. So, so wrapping that back into sexual health, so that is a legal definition. That's a legal definition. And oftentimes, it's a very limiting one because people think the only th- reason we have to worry about consent is if it's legal or not. And that's such a narrow 
oversimplified idea of consent. I think the, the national conversation we're having that's so important. We have a cohort of human beings on the planet that make a transition at around 17 and 18 years old. And they go to these institutions. They either go to college, they go to the military, or they go out to the workplace. And we are having major concerns in our country right now about that age group knowing about sexual consent in those places when they're off to college, when they're in the military. And how is it that they get high school diplomas? Because you have to have high school diplomas to go to these places. How is it that we, they get a high school diploma and they don't understand consent? Or they think they do because they think as long as somebody says yes, I have consent. Or, and it's a simplistic view of, I understand consent, which is a scarier thing because they think they know. Right. So you, there's an oversimplification of consent. And what I think you're really getting to is our next sexual health principle. Actually, I think what you're talking about more of is exploitation. Once you may have an agreement that we both want to have sex with each other, then the real issue is power and the use of power to coerce or shame or badger or uh, overcome somebody to engage in sex. Right. That gets back to the age difference and intoxication potentially. Yes. And so my phrase for this, and, and actually I had to come up with this phrase because when I was doing my research and work on sexual health in drug and alcohol treatment, anytime sexuality came up with people in drug and alcohol treatment, I interviewed professionals all over the country, they'd call them sex addicts. So anybody who presented at a drug treatment center with any kind of concerns about sex, the, the professionals would call them sex addicts. You know, so I had to come up with a language that really was different. So I call it sex drug linked behavior. So there are certain people whose relationship with drugs and alcohol is so merged with their sexual lives that their use of drugs and alcohol implies sexual activity or is solely for sexual activity. It's a real linked behavior. And in college age and in, in young, that 18 to 24 year cohort, and we know the sexual debut of almost well over 75% of all adolescents who have their sexual debut when they're an adolescent is under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Going back to what we started with, I imagine that we have so much shame around the concept of pleasure in sex that the end we grow up with, you know, the sexual education sort of focused on the fear of it. If you think about alcohol, it helps us overcome our own feelings of shame. It helps us overcome fear. So I can see, I mean, there's all sorts of reasons that would be. But I could also imagine the alcohol being such a big component related to the way we approach sexuality in general with adolescents. Yeah. I think why we're seeing a spike, there's always been a link between alcohol, drugs, and sex. That's always been there. But why is it more of an issue now, particularly around consent? I think this is a reverberation of the 90s and the early 2000s emphasis on abstinence-only sex education, where we so emphasized a fear of sex. We gave them terrible information, inaccurate, scientifically inaccurate information in many situations. And we were fetishizing, is what I call it. We were literally fetishizing one moment in the sexual lives of a person. And that's when they have their sexual debut. Now, notice I don't call it losing their virginity. That's not a sexual health phrase. You know, when a child moves from crawling to walking, you know, we don't spend the rest of the life bemoaning the fact that they're no longer a crawler. The sexual debut is an adult developmental experience that we hope leads to a happy and lovely sexual life the whole rest of their lives. This is about health. So, so the, the sexual debut is an important Instead adult developmental milestone. Instead of losing some value, your value being your virginity, you're not losing something. You're yeah. gaining an adult skill that hopefully is a source of pleasure, attachment, love, connection, uh, offspring, pleasure, uh, erotic hotness, confusion, <laughs> all sorts of wetness, all sorts of things the rest of your life. You got, you know, we have to, we have to learn, right? But the one sexual value that is more debated on the planet, literally on the planet than any other sexual value is when a person and under what circumstances a person is supposed to have their sexual debut. It is a source of such enormous difficulty around values and conflict and religion and God and being a good person and sex and gender identity. It's, it's, it's interwoven in everything when that event happens. So I think the dilemma is we've so fetishized 
the sexual debut, we've not prepared young adults to be sexually active people. The only thing we've given them of any value that we think is important for you to know about sex is when you have your debut. So what do people worry about? People worry about if having oral sex is losing their virginity. They don't worry about whether the oral sex is consensual or is non-exploitive or is mutually pleasurable. That's not what they're worried about. They're just wondering if that means they lost their virginity because that's all that matters. That's, as, all, that's all they were taught was mattered. And as long as we didn't actually have intercourse, then there's not coercion. There's not exploitation. Right. There's, we don't have to worry about consent. That's and right. It doesn't so, matter that she was a little um, intoxicated, and so I'm not quite sure how she felt about it. Right. Or, or they, they both might have decided to get intoxicated so they could avoid the whole conflict. I think we need to look at ourselves really closely as how we've created this. And we tend to, when it's about adolescents and young adults, we tend to put the blame on them rather than looking at what systemic dynamics have we created over in our culture, in the environment, to have adolescents thinking this is really all they need to think about. Yeah, Absolutely. How, how, we've missed, how we've missed them. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, we and haven't really helped them. Needs, yeah. We haven't really helped them. And again, because in our culture we, we really don't feel comfortable talking about pleasure, all we've been able to talk with youth about is how sex hurts. And consent is the most hurtful form of sex there is, is non-consent. So that's why consent is so important to talk about. And it concerns me. So if I'm a listener out there yeah. and I have an adolescent, what would be some of the messages that you're wanting to be the, here's a concrete walk away. What do you... Because most most parents out there with adolescents, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just projecting on them because I'm a parent of an adolescent. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm Truth like the disclosure. Yeah. The disclosure. <laughs> talk because, to me, Doug. Talk to me. <laughs> because one of the things we're talking about, and when we talk about our podcast, we're talking about cultural norms, but we're, there's also personal and family norms and yes. how we were raised and what yes. messages we received and what shame we feel around that mm-hmm. and. When do we personally feel like, as you said, the difference between loss of virginity being a loss, something you're trying to protect your child from, or have that experience be something that's coveted instead of done to, right? Yeah. But it's it's a hard feeling to like, oh, how do you help your adolescent through that process to their sexual debut in a way that you feel like you've held them really supportively, but also not, you know, like. Go grab that girl, you know? Like, yes. What are your thoughts? Well, I'm going to backtrack to childhood rather than adolescence. I think if we're worried about this at adolescence, we missed some important opportunities when they were children. So a couple of examples of that would be is using the word consent with children. Did you ask for consent? It sounds really like a stupid word. It's like nobody talks like this. But if you don't use the word, children won't know it. And if it becomes part of conversation in certain moments to teach about consent, when you hit your brother, did your brother give you, did they say, yes, come on and hit me? Rather than don't hit your brother. Uh, You know, so we can either reverence it instead of what not to do, but to come from from a place of having two people having power to get permission for what they exist in the relationship that's right because maybe the brother said yeah hit me i'll hit me four times and see how much it hurts all right well that was consensual <laughs> I mean, you know that, that's and the an parent walks that... in the middle of it it's like what are you doing and they think they're getting in trouble from mom so one of them lies and says he hit me and you know and you never get the story it's actually a frequent activity in this house where the guys will hold their stomach hit me harder right, harder right, right, right. so you know it, it's about consent uh, where that 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 don't hit your brother is an act centered idea. It's like, you know, you just, you just don't do that versus let's teach a principle of consent. That's what we need to do with human contact is making sure that everybody's given consent when bodies touch. You know, it really brings up Doug for me too, is we're talking about the interaction between the two and do they have consent or they not, but you know what also in doing that, it empowers the individuals to go inward and actually like Think about it being an individual decision to give consent. So you have to actually be more self-aware of self and others. So you're teaching that from a childhood. Did your brother say, now I have to think about my 
brother as they experience the world. That's called empathy. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And relationality. Yes. And so instead of consent, we were talking about DTF, Mm -hmm. instead of consent being yay, nay, you're all of a sudden moving consent into more of a relational concept as you're teaching them from childhood up about what is your body feel? When do you feel comfortable? Which is what we always want to try to help our kids feel. And now what's the experience of the other? Yep. Instead of is it yay, nay, yep. thumbs up, thumbs down, can I clearly say I have evidence that they agreed versus do I see them as a human in the whole context? So let me give you one other idea of consent and then we'll move, move to some of the other principles with children. And this is greeting relatives. There's oh, the forced tug. You know, you know, kissing or hugging or, you know, having body contact with relatives. And some smell bad. Some don't brush their teeth. Some of them wear clothes that itch. Uh, you some know, I mean, they look funny. They look scary. funny. And who, I don't know this person, you know, and yet there's this social custom of we expect our children to show a certain form of warmth or greeting of people that usually involves bodily contact. That may and, not be at and, all and, comfortable. And you, and you watch children protest. You know, and they'll hug the uncle and they're like grimacing and they're like, they look disgusted, but this is like supposed to be a warm greeting. So what they're really being taught is what your body is telling you what you want doesn't matter here. Mm, Good point. Social custom matters. Mm. Who's an authority matters. Uh, Don't shame your family matters. Do what you're told. Do what you're told matters. Mm -hmm. Now, these are constructs that have to be deconstructed for people to get consent right. Mm. So if we if we if we if we kind of look at these messages early in life, we may not have to work so hard later. Oh, that's a really really good point. Listening to your body and that doesn't feel good, and, and the body will tell us. Yes, I mean it's you know the body's really helpful in these moments. Rather than teaching you to ignore, I know that feels disgusting. I don't care. Go do that's right, and that says what how you feel in your body doesn't matter at this moment. It's what's expected of you. Right matters. now, now we get to the second. Sexual health principle exploitation Mm. or non-exploitation. I love the jump. That history of those consent violations is exactly what people exploit Mm. when they exploit people for sex. Mm -hmm. They know and, and understand that most people have been socialized, that at some point they will be coercively surrender to something they don't want. Oh, yeah. And I'm uh, sorry, but it's hard not to go political in that moment, but we can jump right over that. Good, but. good. Because, you know, there's such a tendency to want to make this macro. Right, right. But the power is the personal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the macro distances us from the feelings about this. Mm-hmm. The minute we bring up exploitation, there is not a single person listening to this that can't relate to a moment when they felt exploited in sex. Very true. It's just, it's, you just, it just doesn't work. It's happened to all of us. Men and women. Men and women, absolutely. Well, or, But we got to remember, it's not just happened to. Mm. I have been the exploiter. Mm-hmm. So we, we forget, we, we tend to always want to focus on the target of the exploitation when there's a whole bunch of people out there who have been the exploiters. Mm-hmm. And they need just as much help and they need, they're having just as much struggles as the people being exploited. Mm-hmm. We're in this together. That's a great point. Now we'll get to adolescence, because I think the world of adolescent sexuality is managing exploitation. Boy, you speak the truth. (laughs) Uh, And the number one form of exploitation, literally they're preoccupied with every day, is when they get out of bed and turn on their phone. Oh my God, did that picture get posted? Did I get any likes on it? Did, yeah, right, right. You know, did I get likes on it? You know, and I showed my breast and it's like, oh, did I get likes? Oh, I got 10 likes, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, whatever. So uh, yeah, and 3,000 friends. And three, right. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so that's very reinforcing. But was that breast picture posted consensually? Did people give permission for that? Or did somebody secretly take the photo? And then am I going to be humiliated? With, am I going to be humiliated? So the, the world of adolescent sexuality right now, I think, is it the most heightened management of fear of exploitation than I think at any other time in adolescent life. Yeah, yeah. where I see it a lot is where, you know, somebody might post a sexy picture to a friend or something that's a shared experience, Mm -hmm. but then that friend... It's so easy to forward, pass along, share with they someone. They didn't get consent exactly. to and, forward that and picture. And then exponentially, boom. Yep. And then that's real, real injury. Yeah. So, well, we so, think of that with sexual pictures, but there's also ways where people are doing like they're unflattering pictures. 
right? That then kind of sends a message off, which is still the same kind of exploitation. Yeah, the exploitation years ago before all of this imagery and social media was accessible would be one's reputation. So it was gossip rather than imagery. So, you know, they're easy or, you know, they're a faggot or, you know, so it was reputation, it was language, they're a whore. So it it was language that was the source of exploitation and the fear of those reputations being for you. So that, but that was a social interaction around language. Now it's imagery. Words aren't nearly as exploitively available for teenagers now as images. And so I think the world of adolescent sexuality is managing the risk of exploitation. Well, and they have uh, such a relationship to those images too. Oh, yes. That re- those images almost represent more the relational context than those relationships on the other, li- other end that are receiving or sharing. When you stop to think of exploitation in relationships, so we're talking about it with adolescents, we're mm-hmm. talking, but if I think about it and we talk about unequal power, sometimes unequal power just happens for a moment. It's not even the kind context of the we think of unequal power we think of a boss to a you know and that like it's a permanent always in power imbalance right but there's power imbalance in, in experiences within relationships where one individual feels like if they don't engage in sexuality they have somehow hurt or are not taking care of their partner mm-hmm. right so there's a they confusion feel guilt or you know concern mm-hmm. or shame or, or their partner's going to be angry right they're, they're afraid so have, of an attachment rupture they're afraid of distance they're afraid of maybe violence right yes yes there are all sorts of exploitations that are more at a subtle context so here's the one i like to talk about is i work with men without a control sexual behavior and many of the men that i work with have violated the agreements in their primary relationship. So what that means is they made some sort of sexual agreement. Here's what we do sexually with each other. Here's what we don't. And what I call it, they unilaterally changed that agreement, didn't bother to inform the person they have the relationship with, and went about with a very different agreement. And here's the exploitive part. They kept pretending as if they were keeping the agreement. Mm. Mm -hmm. So with the men I talk with, I'll say, okay, I want you to tell me about a one five-minute moment in your life. You've just returned home after violating the sexual agreement in your couple. And the partner you have the agreement with is at home. You walk in the door, and I want you to describe to me how you handle the first five minutes you're home. Because that's where the exploitation happens. They don't walk in the door and say, I have something to tell you. It breaks my heart. But I just broke our agreement. They don't do that. They walk in and exploit. And they take advantage of the power of perception that the person at home believes they've kept the agreement and the person walking in the door does everything they can to have that person believe that. That's exploitation because information is power. Information is power. Mm -hmm. And so I think that is one of the most common forms of exploitation in American homes. Mm -hmm. We focus on all these violations and yes, they're horrible things, but that exchange is some of the most frequent forms of exploitation and the the most common violations adults engage in in violating sexual health principles. Yeah, that's interesting. It makes me think, yeah, of just infidelity in general. And I'm so in curious a se- from a sexual health perspective. I was perspective. just going to say, I was just kind of queuing you up. Like, what's what's what the... made you question the word infidelity? Well, because now it's like it's this has really been opening around uh before we got on the air we were talking i mentioned something about being able to get to pornography and was schooled on i hope it wasn't schooled. i love it no 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 <laughs> no no it's not a meaning okay. like my my eyes were opened to the pathology embedded in the word that isn't necessarily intended when we say it but it's just in there yes that it's mm. hard to think of it as a sexy exciting positive thing when you use the term. And so you had opened my eyes to the idea of sexual images or explicit sexual images or viewing images or mm-hmm. using images. Mm-hmm. For so entertainment not, or pleasure. For entertainment mm-hmm. or for So pleasure. not mm-hmm. inserting right. our cultural bias in norms unconsciously, yes. right? Like when we say the word pornography, we weren't consciously thinking we're asserting some norm. The, of about, pathology. Of, of pathology or shame. But if you say the word pornography and you say, give me 10 adjectives to describe that, most people would have a fairly negative. So it's yeah. it's opening our eyes to more pulling our culture out of our terminology. And so the term infidelity to me began to feel like pornography. Like 
what is embedded in the term infidelity. And is there anything that comes to mind just sitting here right now that, that, that you think is embedded in that well, term? Well, I think certainly there's an assumption. I mean, this isn't what even I meant by it, but the same mm-hmm. thing, it's not what I meant exactly, by pornography. Exactly, right. It's not what you but meant. But I, I think there is this assumption of this monogamous agree, you know, kind of the norm mm-hmm. agreement mm-hmm. that already kind of closes down the conversation. So that's, I think, why I caught it. Right. But I wouldn't the, know what the to word infidelity comes from the assumption that there's one way in which to configure relationships in a moral way. And that is through monogamy. Right, right. And that isn't even what I was thinking, but I right. hear that it's embedded in the right. term. So, so I use the term sexual agreement. And the reason I use that is because couples have all sorts of sexual agreements. I think the more interesting relational dynamic, the more attachment rupture, is when someone unilaterally changes an agreement about the sex life of a couple and doesn't inform the other person who's affected by that right. agreement. Then that's or doesn't engage in that. a dialogue before. That's right. Not, not that's, even well, informing. There but we go. Yeah, yeah, like yeah that, that's not... right. It's about before. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's about before. I want to change our agreement. Mm-hmm. I'm inside, this is what's going on, and I want to tell you about what's going on inside me and I'm that s- makes me want to change and the And I'm agreement. really scared to bring it to you, like yeah. just to bring in the emotional, psychological Ooh. component. This is a real risk for me. I'm not wanting you to go away or push you away. I'm wanting to get closer to you and sharing this with you. One of the things I like to remind the men I work with without a control sexual behavior, because they, they'll, they'll sit in a room, and, and, and I only work with the men in groups. And so the men will be in group, and they'll, they'll be talking all about how scared they are to talk to their partners about a sexual interest or a sexual desire or a sexual activity they want to engage in. And they make it out like it's, it's such a precarious and risky thing to do. I have a different way of looking at it. My idea is when you withhold your erotic turn-ons, the really pleasurable ones, and you withhold and don't tell your partner what they are, what you're choosing to do is not to get to know your partner. If you really want to get to know your partner, tell them who you are erotically, and your partner will let you know who they are in ways you've completely underestimated them. Because you have a whole script in your head that somehow they're not going to be the person you want them to be. And I have no idea who they're going to be. But when you don't tell them this stuff about you, you are avoiding knowing the person you love. I love that. And I would take it even one other step. You're avoiding knowing them and you're avoiding the incredible interaction of growth between you because it's not that that person has a fully, maybe they have a fully formed idea that you don't know, but maybe they don't even know who they are and yes. that we grow in context with one another. Isn't so, that what we call relationships? Exactly. That's <laughs> the reason we want to do this podcast. Right. And, and, to, and, and that by bringing something to your partner and saying, this is really hard, but this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking about that I want. What's that like for you? Yes. Instead of holding it so long that you're actually informing them of a decision you've made. Three years ago, twenty right. years ago, or, and I've and I've never told you about it. Or absolutely, <laughs> or a decision I've made now because I've held it in so long. I've now come to a decision for. We'll just throw in. I'd like to open the marriage up. Right, right. Just grab one out of the air. I haven't joined in my partner on that journey of what I'm thinking about. I've cut them off of that until now I've made this decision. This is what I want. So now I'm a formula partner of a decision I've made and saying, what do you think? And think of all the richness of the journey of your contemplation you haven't shared. And then to your point, Doug, also you're making projections and assumptions how they're going to react. Yep. And you're not giving them room first, maybe to have initial negative reaction, right? Mm-hmm. Or And then what does it stir in them? And can you be there for that instead of then your goal is to convince them that the position you're in is where you are? You know, you're, you're missing the journey. Mm-hmm. And love your point. You're missing getting to know your partner and your partner getting to know you and y'all joining together in the journey of what sex, because sexuality develops in your lifetime. It's not like this is who I am. This is who I'm not. Right. Well, yes. One of, I, we, I, I interviewed uh, couples for a video training I did, I don't know, 20 years ago. It was a VHS tape. That's how long ago it was. So you, you, in a VHS tape, I recorded this interview and this long-term couple we asked, what is the secret of, they've been together about 30 years, what, 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 you know, what's the secret of, of a long-term relationship? And I love what this, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a female couple. And one of the women said, well, it's not so much 
that who I fell in love with 30 years ago is who I'm with now. It's that throughout the years, I've been able to fall in love with over and over again with the person she's become. And that's true with eroticism as well. There's an erotic and sexual person we are when we're young, uh, as we age, and we, we have to introduce our erotic self to our partners in much the same way we introduce, mm-hmm. I guess I like Brussels sprouts now, and I didn't used to. It's, right. ju- it's yeah. just the way life is. And the richness of being able to fall in love again over and over and over again because you're discovering yourself. Why do we fall in love almost always to begin with? One of the things that gets activated in us is the the growth inside that we experience in ourselves. It's not just the person we see. It's what they bring out in us. What, and what's really painful is when the person becomes somebody I can't love anymore. Mm. And sometimes that's about sex. Mm-hmm. I, I, who you are sexually, I can't love. And this is very painful. This is really painful for people. And where do we have these conversations? And where do we do it with empathy rather than blame? And when it's, it, particularly if it's about an unconventional or a sexual activity I judge or I think is disgusting, you know, I may have no empathy for you that you've changed what you like erotically and I just, I just want to be rid of you. These are acceptable relationship resolution moments when it comes to sex. When our society, we don't shun people for um, making children grow up in divorced homes because of a sexual conflict. But, you know, that's, that's our world. The one thing I want to add about consent and non-exploitation before we move on is I think these are the two areas of sexuality that are the most common violations, sexual health violations, in the sense that certainly the most commonplace where non-consensual and exploitive activity happens in the United States is in the family home. And we don't like to think about that. We always think it's those strangers. We think it's those other people. But quite frankly, this is where most of it happens. Uh, it could be somebody who's entered the home. It's somebody home you're in. Siblings. Uh, yeah, siblings. Uh, it could be step siblings, step-parents, it could be uh, a minister who comes over for dinner, you know, it could be anybody. But the home is the primary location for non-consent and exploitive sex uh, in, the, in the United States. I think that's such an important thing to be part of this episode, because it really is, if I, somebody said, what's your association to sexual exploitation? I'm thinking of sex workers. Right. I'm thinking, uh, you know. About it, as far away as our living room as we can get. Exactly. <laughs> and, and yet, to be able to have a rich dialogue about ways that it happens in the home, in ways that it happens inside us, like you said, us being the exploiter, and that we don't even recognize or in our own relationship. And to be able to have a dialogue about exploitation and again, exploitation and health, exploitation and being able to talk about it, not just from the fear, but from how do you engage in a ways that in not exploiting, it actually becomes really robust and safe. It's like, a, it's instead of to avoid the negative, don't exploit, it's how do we engage in the relational way where exploitation is not part of the dynamic because of the way we're engaging with one another? One way to think about uh, how non-exploitation and moving into a non-exploitative place can create sexual energy is um, what couples call makeup sex after fights. Ah. Uh, because they usually had a fight because something's gone on they haven't wanted to talk about, they've been afraid to talk about, they, you know, and they finally get it out and it has some sort of power differential. They're worried they're not going to be heard. I don't know what it is. But then they find out, oh, we don't have to be in that space anymore. And all of a sudden they look really hot. <laughs> that's so true. I love it. I love it. So that's called makeup sex. <laughs> that's great. We, we moved out of exploitive into non-exploitive, and all of a sudden you look sexy to me. Well, sometimes it becomes exploit. <laughs> hey, maybe it isn't exploited. Can we talk about just a few minutes the process of differing sexual desires, the amount mm, of sexual desires. Desire discrepancy. And, and how that sometimes is played out in a partnership that can be either connecting and loving because it exists or it can become exploitive. And I think that's a real confusion a lot of times inside relationships. You know, you've just brought up the most difficult to understand. What sex research has helped us with desire discrepancy has not been a lot. So it's a very common issue people bring for sex therapy. And yet we don't have the kind of really confident solutions for desire discrepancy like we wished we did. So we're kind of all in it together. 
You know, so so if somebody comes with desire discrepancy to a therapy, I think the one thing I would say is uh, try not to have unrealistic expectations that there's some really terrific answer out there for you. It's very individual. It's very complex. There's a lot of factors that go into desire discrepancy, some medical, some physical, uh, some psychological, some attitudinal, some value-based. Desire is an enormously complex part of the human sexual response. There's just a couple of things I would suggest about desire discrepancy before you think about it as being something that needs professional help. One of the things we know about the sexual response that is... Wait, do you mind if I jump in? Yeah. So what we're... Just, again, I'm thinking about the listener out there. So desire discrepancy, we're just assuming Ah, that people know what that means, right? What we're talking about is when one of you is... has a higher rate of wanting to have some sort of sexual encounter. Yes. Whether it be, you know, a lot of times when we first get together, it's, it matches because we're both turned on a lot and frequently and or often. Or in limerence. And, that and state limerence. is called limerence. Yes. In, in the limerence state, this is how human beings reproduce. If we didn't have limerence, we wouldn't reproduce. We have to have a state where we don't care all about, much about the partner. We just want to have sex with them. We just want to have sex with them. <laughs> and then at some point that fades off. That's right. And then that's when you can see our kind of actual natural uh, baseline, yeah. if you will. That so we that's have to what, figure out how to live with the right. rest of and the it's almost And it's almost never exactly the same regarding frequency and all kinds, many of the things that we're talking about now. Right. So just... Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Sue. So, so desire discrepancy is this sort of really, it's just a, a lack of a, a kind of a matching moment. You know, are you right. hungry right now? No, right. I'm not really right. very hungry. Well, right. I'll go and sit at the restaurant with you. Right, is it, is it exactly, is it mm. two times a week or is it, you know, every other month? No, you know? the dilemma with desire discrepancy is it moves too quickly to the focus on frequency. Yes. I, I, think, I think desire, it gets confused. Frequency of sex is a different issue than desire. So one of the things I was going to say about desire is one thing a couple can experiment with is if you don't feel desirous of sex, we know people can get sexually excited if they just start having sex. So people think if they don't feel desire, they shouldn't move towards sex. But actually, many people start feeling sexually desirous after they start having sex. So have you experimented with that? Have you tried that? You know, give it a shot and say, all right, I'll be willing to start having sex and then see what happens. Thanks for listening, everybody, to the first half of our conversation on sexual health and vitality with Doug Brown Harvey. Uh, If you found this conversation interesting, and hopefully you did, you'll find the second half, I think, will continue to provide really interesting insights into things that we think about frequently, but maybe not discuss. So, Tune in next week for the second half. And if you made it this far with us, hopefully you felt like you got something important out of it. And we would love it. Hopefully you've already subscribed. But we would really appreciate it if you could go on to your favorite podcast player and rate and review us honestly. We want to do a big shout out for those listeners that uh, give us feedback. It's super helpful and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we will tune in next week. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.